Harris. This is the Heidi Harris Show podcast. I do these a couple of times a week. You can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. You can also find me Sunday night live in 7 to 9 p.m. St. Louis time and St. Louis 97.1 FM talk. During the week, you can find me doing videos every single day. I post them at HeidiHarris.com. As you may know, if you listen to my show or you hear my podcast, I care about social issues far more than I do really anything else, far more about politics, because everything starts in the home. And if the family's not right, if children aren't being raised correctly, it affects society in a huge way. We all know that. Came across a woman recently who's a real hero when it comes to those kinds of issues. Her name is Katie Faust. She's author and president of a group called Them Before Us. The book is called Them Before Us. The organization is called Them Before Us. It's a children's rights organization. Now, I know what you're thinking. In the past, people like Hillary Clinton have pushed various children's rights organizations that do nothing but, what, separate kids from parents? She's not talking about that. She's talking about a child's right to a family. Them Before Us, I cannot recommend it highly enough it's incredible. It talks about all the issues of children, whether it's biology and, you know, versus adoption, versus surrogacy, versus gay or straight parents, divorce, steps, all of that, and what's best for kids. Great book. Katie Faust, welcome. So glad to have you here. Thank you. And yeah, you're exactly right. This um, phrase has been adulterated and yes. used for the purpose of smuggling in some of the most dangerous ideologies, um, whether it's the separation of children from their own parents, whether it is a validation of this medical, chemical and surgical, you know, castration of children. Right. I mean, like there's all kinds of ways the term, whether it's like promoting um, the a child's right to sexual pleasure through international mm -hmm. materials, often funded by organizations like the United Nations and International Planned Parenthood. The, the term children's rights has been abused. I am using it properly. And when you <laughs> properly understand children's rights, what you see is it actually reinforces true parental rights. There are people who will hear about your organization or read your book and think you're maybe against gay parenting or you're saying, oh, gay people can't raise kids. That's not at all true. You know that from firsthand experience. Talk a little bit about that, please. Yeah, it's not as uh, if you Google Katie Faust, it's not going to be as sensational as what you read. Um, my parents were divorced when I was 10. And um, I, I was raised by my mom and dad before that. I was raised by my mom and dad after that in a split home situation. Mm -hmm. um, but my mom repartnered with a woman and they've been in a relationship ever since. So when I was at my mom's, I was living with her and her partner. Um, so when you Google, you know, woman with two moms is railing against gay marriage. Um, I don't have two moms. Nobody has two moms. Everybody mm. has a mom and dad. Um, but, and I don't consider my mom's partner my mom, but I do consider my mom's partner my friend. And what I can mm. confidently tell you is that my mom is an awesome mom. And most of the things I do well as a mother now, I have four kids, I do because I'm just replicating how my mother mothered me. So your sexual attractions don't determine whether or not you're a good parent. Um, sexual, your sexual attractions and how you identify is not a criteria for parenting, but gender is. Maleness right. and femaleness absolutely is. And people are like, well, what does your mother think about, you know, what you're doing? And I, my standard answer is I don't speak for her, but I will tell you this. She knows that two men could never replace her. And that mm -hmm. is exactly what the cultural narrative is saying today, is that my mother was completely optional and inconsequential in my life. And any two men could have done this just as well as she could have. And I'm like, well, that's pretty much BS. So wow. that's, that's, that's the only reason why my personal story intersects here. But as you 
you know, discover if you read the book. This is not a book about me. This is not a book about my life. Right. Um, this is a book about the fundamental rights that every human child has that is validated by the very best research um, and the, the highest level of social science scholarship that we have and validated by the hundreds of stories of kids that were raised in modern families that we share throughout the book. One of the things that's frustrated me, when gay marriage became legal, if marriage doesn't mean one thing, it can mean anything. And there's no reason legally why two or three women can't be married to the same guy. I mean, if it's all about who you love, right? But for example, when the sister wives moved to Las Vegas, the local media there was making a big fuss and talking about Cody and his wives. And I was, you know, reading the paper like I read in all kinds of city papers. I said, wait a minute, that's not true. They're not his wives. One he's married to, one he was married to. The others are baby mamas. Stop calling them wives. But this is the kind of thing that happens and people just accept it as normal. And the more you normalize any construct of people as a quote unquote family, the worse it is for kids. Well, just simply that what you see taking place in the way that we are conceptualizing polygamy has happened in every other marriage and family conversation. And really, it is what the adults want romantically and sexually is the highest good. And right. the conversation almost obsessively focuses on what adults want romantically or sexually. And that has happened in every conversation about marriage and family. Mm -hmm. It, we first saw it, honestly, when it had to do with no-fault divorce, right? That is the first place where we saw, well, marriage is just about adult happiness. And so if the adults stop being happy, it can stop being a marriage. And so right. then people that, you know, believed in gay marriage said, well, if marriage is just about happiness, I'm happy being married to another man, right? right? And now we polygamists are making the same arguments. Well, being sure. married to more than one people makes me happy. But we've right. also seen it in um, situations of reproductive technologies, right? Like... I desperately want this baby, even though I am a single man or I am a single woman. And because I desperately want this, I have a right to it. I should be able to have it. Right. So what we do in our book is we look at every, and our movement, we look at every single marriage and family conversation from the definition of marriage to divorce, same-sex parenting, transgender parenting, cohabitation, polygamy, sperm donation, egg donation, surrogacy, even adoption. If it intersects with marriage and family, what we do is we say, no. Adult desire does That's not right. drive this conversation. The fundamental rights children have to their mother and father should be the defining aspect of all of these conversations, both in terms of your personal life and in terms of the policy that we're making. And what's incredible is if you take that template, you can lay it over the top of any question about marriage and family. Do LGBT people have a right to adopt? Should we have two women on a birth certificate? Should we elevate cohabiting relationships to the same status as marriage mm -hmm. relationships? You can lay that over the top and come out with the right answer that is going to secure not just the individual thriving of the child, but the fundamental thriving of society as well. When we look mm -hmm. at marriage and family, through the lens of children's right to their mother and father, um, it is the right path forward. That is so true. One of the things that you mentioned in your book, you said arguments against biology always come from people who are either in a different lifestyle or can't hold a marriage together. That is so true. I know a couple of women who got to a certain age, couldn't keep a guy or whatever, couldn't find a guy, and they decided they wanted a baby and that's it. And they're late 30s, so they're going to have a baby, either trick the guy and get pregnant and not tell him or whatever. And... <laughs> These children are going to be raised without fathers. How selfish of them to make that decision for their child. Yeah, well, and welcome to the children's rights movement. I mean, right. if this is where you are, where you're going to insist that every adult, single, married, gay, and straight, recognize and conform to the rights of children, 
You're one of us. And one mm -hmm. of us is an awful lot of people who identify as gay and lesbian who also right. believe that children should have moms and dads. And some people who would say, I have gender dysphoria, or I, you know, we've got Muslims, Catholics, LDS, atheists. I mean, if you are on board with insisting that adults do hard things for kids instead of forcing kids to do hard things for adults, Right. Welcome to our movement. Welcome to our mm -hmm. movement. And the good news is like, you're going to join quite a ragtag coalition that is going to change the world because this mm -hmm. is actually, this is the thing that mm -hmm. every single society needs to do and recognize. Otherwise, every single society is going to crumble. And so people that are still grounded somewhat, somewhat tethered to reality, um, they're, they understand that this is simply a non-negotiable if you are after any kind of health in society. And yeah, you've got the people that are like, well, my kid doesn't need this. My kid doesn't need that. Well, culture can say whatever they want. And honestly, our laws can legislate away a child's right to a mother and father. But what you'll never be able to do is legislate away a child's longing for that. That's mother. right. That's exactly you right. Desperately yeah. want it, regardless of what the cultural narrative says, regardless of what the Supreme Court decides. The question is just... Will our laws and will our culture align with the natural rights and the natural cravings of kids, or will they just force them to be accoutrements for whatever arrangement adults want for their sexual lives? Right. That's so true. By the way, you got you got some facts that um, people who are not aware of this issue may not understand how much more likely a child is to be beaten to death by their stepfather or live in boyfriend 120 times more likely based on studies. Yeah. And, you know, people say to me all the time, biology doesn't matter. And probably because we have this incredible rich history of adoption in our country. And so a lot of people say that probably out of defensiveness or protectiveness for the adoptive parents or adopted children that they know. Right. And so they'll say, well, biology doesn't matter. Kids just need to be safe and loved. And I say, well, then you just agreed with me that biology matters because statistically, without question, the safest home the safest place for a child is in the home of their married biological mother mm -hmm. and father. Statistically, mm -hmm. a child's own biological parents are the safest, most connected to, protective of, and invested in that child. And this is exactly why adoptive parents like me have to go through months of screening and vetting and background checks, because it's statistically risky to put a child in a home with an unrelated adult. And mm -hmm. those kids who are at 120 times, 120 times like more likely risk to be abused, neglected, and killed by an unrelated cohabiting man know that better than anyone else. Right. That's true. You also mentioned something I found fascinating. A lot of people will, and they always give the same thing. Well, we're, we're in a blended family and it works. I had a great stepdad and it worked. I had a great stepmom and it worked. You talked about that. All right. Personally, you dealt with that. Another study you talk about adoptive parents, they say invest, you're talking about they're investing more time and resources in their children than biological parents do because the parents are in pursuit of a child, but a step-parent, and this is such an important point that you make in your book, a step-parent is not in pursuit of the kid. Your step-parent is in pursuit of you, that your kid is an afterthought. They may have had to deal with it. I'm not saying all step-parents are bad. Obviously many are great. We're not talking about that, but it's a different dynamic. Yeah, well, and we mentioned throughout the book that what is the what is the dividing line between adults that get the them before a seal of approval and the ones that get the seal of disapproval? <laughs> and it is just that are the adults doing hard things or that are they insisting that kids do hard things? Right. But if you want to look at systems and realities and the natural laws that govern family, what you are going to see is the addition of an unrelated adult 
does not increase beneficial outcomes for children. There are exceptions. Mm -hmm. Thank God for those exceptions. Right. But what we find is kids who are raised by a mom and married stepfather, for example, fare about as well as kids raised by a single mother, which is to say, not well compared mm -hmm. to kids raised by their married biological parents. So right. what this conversation always devolves to is what about this exception? What about this exception? Right, right. Acknowledge the exceptions. But if you are not willing to understand what the rule is, and that is that biology matters in the parent-child relationship, gender matters in the parent-child relationship, and mm -hmm. marriage matters in the parent-child relationship, right. get off my lawn. You're really right. just here to make excuses for your own life because these three realities are the dividing line between kids who thrive and kids who suffer. Katie, one of the things I've seen in my own family is, you know, in a second marriage many times, most of them dis dissolve, 70% of second marriages end in divorce, they say. And often that first child from the first marriage is an afterthought, especially if those people go on to have another child or if they get divorced and the person who's been doing the step parenting for years suddenly decides, eh, that's not my kid. I don't want to deal with them anymore because there's no biological relationship. Not always, but it happens. So look at it from the child's perspective. That is the entire book. The entire book is, I don't care what you think, adults. We have been hearing from you for five <laughs> decades. You've driven this narrative. Right. So now we're going to look at this from the kids' perspective. How do they fare? What do they think? You know, what are the questions they have? What are their actual outcomes? Right. And there was one survey that talked about how kids perceive their step-parent. And it came down to like only 25% of kids in step-family arrangements ended up claiming the step parent, like actually saying, yeah, that person belongs to me. Mm -hmm. Most of them, 75%. And like you said, because the marriage broke up in one way, they didn't want to remain in contact with the step parent. Right. Like that person right. is not special. That doesn't. And yet what's so interesting is kids who have never met their biological parent, like kids cre created through sperm and egg donation, 50% or more of them would say that person I have never met is my father. Right. And right. so the whole thing that like the adults can just say, this is your parent, but that's not your parent. When you right. look at it from a kid's perspective, they're like, I actually want my biological parent. Right. And this person who is in my house, I'll figure out a way to live with them. Maybe I'll recognize they have some nice qualities. A lot of older kids will say, well, I'm glad you found happiness, mom. But not a lot of them would say, fabulous. This completely meets my need. And this is so uncomplicated that I can just you know, cut off this allegiance to, you know, my biological parent and transfer my allegiance onto the step parent. I think most step families do recognize that there is some complexity. Um, mm -hmm. And most of them recognize there is some additional challenge here. So mm -hmm. I hope that I think that most of them are working through, look, we're not going to make this neat and pretty, but I, but the neat and pretty narrative is what drives the conversation, both culturally and in terms of our court decisions. Mm -hmm. And another thing people don't understand is if you are a child, especially if you're a child having trouble, junior high, whatever, and you're home at night with your mom and your stepdad, it's not the same as being in the home with your biological father. It's just not the same. Yeah, that's exactly right. We actually opened chapter two about biology, quoting a man named Pat Fagan, who has done 50 years of child and family therapy. And he said something to me I've never forgotten. He said, there is only one relationship that I have observed in my 50 years of family counseling where you can be loved indirectly. Most of us feel loved when someone brings us a gift or gives us a hug or gives us a compliment or something like that. But there's one relationship where you can be loved indirectly, and it's this. 
when a child sees his mother loving his father, he feels right. like his father is loving them. When he mm -hmm. sees his mother loving his father, he feels like his mother is loving him. Even if neither of them are even looking at him, that when a child sees his own mother loving his own father, he experiences love. When that kid sees mom loving stepdad, he experiences competition. Right. He does not feel like mom is loving him. Maybe he'll just sit back and wait and be like, well, when she's done, we'll hang out. But very mm. often he feels competition and jealousy. Get away from mm. my mom. You're taking time away from me. I want right. that attention. There's not sure. room for you in this family. I'm not getting enough of mom anyway. And so I thought that was fascinating, right? That, mm -hmm. that there is something that happens when a child watches his own mother and father love each other that is not replicated when you see mom or dad loving the new boyfriend, the new girlfriend, the new husband, the new wife. Talk a little bit about surrogacy. You mentioned the divorce aspect, but what about surrogacy? What about people who may be married and just can't have a child and they've tried everything and they maybe they're too old to adopt or children are too hard to find or whatever, and they really, really want a baby and they'd be great parents. How dare you tell them they're wrong? Talk a little bit about that. I know you discuss it in the book, Them Before Us, but please share it with my audience. Yeah, well, and that is the beauty and the difficulty of defending children's rights is we will piss you off too. I'm sorry. There's no adult that's going to get a pass in the world of children's rights. It insists that every adult do hard things for kids. And so there's a lot of people on the right who are really comfortable talking about that when it comes to those gay people, but not right. a lot of people that are comfortable talking about that when it comes to you've got to buck up and fix your marriage so you don't shackle your kids with lifelong right. loss. And then there are the people who are very self-righteous about marriage and, you know, very self-righteous if you're gay and, you know, they're just the church gossips, but that sin is bad. Your sin is not. Or people who cheat on their spouses, straight people who cheat on their spouses. And, you know, they're not exactly setting the example for how to raise a nuclear family either. I'll say that hypocrisy probably killed the efforts to defend marriage. I, mm. I just think that that's, that's we, there was a lot of people that spoke up on behalf of marriage as you know, I didn't use these words, but as a sacred institution and people are like, Oh, sacred. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's why you've gotten so many divorces, remarriage. That's why you never speak right. up against the people right. that are shocking up in your congregation. Right. Oh, but when it's gay people, it's a problem. Oh yeah. Exactly. I would, I would even say that like even marriage, even pro family organizations that got very hot and bothered about gay marriage didn't say anything about divorce have never spoken up about heterosexuals using sperm donors. And all of that massively infringes on the rights and well-being of children. Right. So that's the benefit of coming over to them before us is we will critique any idea or any practice that harms children, but that means you'll probably be critiqued too. I can do the thing that would make me happy, but my kids will pay the price. And mm -hmm. So that is going to, like I said, it's going to make demands on all of us. It makes demands on the people with an unplanned pregnancy um, who suddenly go, okay, now we are either have to start conforming to our child's right to life and right to be known and loved by their mother every day, which means both of us grow up real fast, mm -hmm. right? Or we force the kid to pay for this with their life or losing a parent. Right. You know, it infringes on the rights of, not the rights, the desires of married couples who are struggling in their marriage, which, hey, is every single person at some point in their marriage. This is also true when it comes to reproductive technologies, right? Heterosexual couples were the very, very first to start introducing a third party into their relationship, mm. to have the baby 
desperately wanted, right? It was heterosexual couples who started using sperm donors because the mom desperately wanted a baby. And for some reason, she thought that a biological connection to that child mattered to her, but she could believe that the child's biological connection to the father wouldn't matter to the baby, right? right. So that's how that began. And now if we're gonna say, well, Dave Rubin and his husband can't, mm -hmm. ha can't purchase eggs from an unknown woman, rent the womb of a third party and raise a motherless child. Um, that offends me, but it's okay if a sweet Christian heterosexual couple uses a sperm donor. I'm sorry, but hypocrisy like that actually makes it really difficult for you to have a credible voice when it comes to mm -hmm. speaking up against issues that violate the rights of children. So here's your cheat sheet on sperm donation, egg donation, and surrogacy. The answer is no, for everyone. Nobody does that. It does mm -hmm. not matter if you're a single man, a single woman, a straight, sweet, Christian, heterosexual couple, two men, two women. You are always forcing a child to sacrifice their fundamental rights for you mm -hmm. if you are going to introduce a third party into your baby making activities. What about the people who say, look, husband, wife, it's the wife's egg. It's the husband's sperm. We're going to have to implant it in somebody else, but we're going to take it home and we're going to give it a great home. We promise we're really going to love this baby. Okay. Number one. Surrogacy always involves IVF. Always. Mm -hmm. You're always making babies in a laboratory. 93% of those babies will not be born alive. There is a gauntlet that kids have to get through to actually be born alive through this process. Most of them mm -hmm. are going to die in a freezer. Okay, we have 1 million babies on ice in this country right now. Wow. The largest human rights crises that we have. And a huge chunk of them are abandoned. The parents have stopped paying the storage fee. But what do you do? Do you just let the babies die? We're speaking with Katie Faust, president of Them Before Us, a children's rights organization. The book is called Them Before Us. Something else you mentioned in the book is how many children who are, you know, I don't know, the product of surrogacy are basically treated as property. We haven't done that since the slavery days in America. Yep, that's exactly right. And ironically, it was Virginia when they were passing surrogacy laws and redefining parenthood so that people could create custom ordered children and take them home wow. even though they're not related to them and they don't have to go through any background checks or adoption screenings like the rest of us unrelated adults you know with children in our life who aren't biologically ours right they they had to call that kid something but they couldn't call it a baby so they just deemed it property let me just mm -hmm. tell you very very clearly what surrogacy is we all think surrogacy is about helping people have babies and I love babies and you love babies, but that's not what surrogacy is. Surrogacy is on demand designer babies shipped worldwide. This is an international oh, wow. baby making industry. Yeah. That is what this is. And what surrogacy does is something that mother nature has never allowed, that God never intended and that humanity has never seen. And that is intentionally motherless kids. It is very, very hard to make a motherless child. But that is what surrogacy does. So specifically what it does is it separates what should be one woman mother into three optional women, genetic mother, birth mother, and social mother. So genetic mother is wow. the woman who contributes right. the egg. Okay. Mm -hmm. You can Google egg donor catalog now and you can shop for your child's mother. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The next one is the birth mother who is the surrogate. That is the woman that the baby's going to bond with. That's the person that she's going to know the moment she's born. It's her voice that will calm the child. It's her heartbeat that's going to soothe the baby. 
It's her milk that the baby craves. It is only her presence that will lower cortisol levels when the baby is born, because that is the only familiar person the baby knows. The baby wow. does not know that she's genetically related to somebody else. The baby has bonded with that one person. And the baby will suffer traumatic loss when they lose that person. We know that because that is what infant adoptees have been citing and and having their perspective verified on for a couple decades, right? But surrogacy does not break that mother-child bond because there's tragedy. They do it intentionally and commercially. Wow. And third, the other mother is the social mother, the woman who's in the baby's life every single day, kissing the boo-boos, making sure that they have, you know, vegetables at every meal, putting them to bed on time. Um, moms tend to soothe and nurture babies in ways that dads don't. Hello, welcome to the common sense, obvious world, you know, that everybody else knows. Um, dads are really important. There are some things that moms do, especially in those early years that men don't. So what surrogacy does is it says, which of these three women do you want? Which do you not have? Which do you need to pay for? We'll hook you up. Okay. And so what it does is it allows for a child to be separated really from all three. They're cut off from their genetic mother. They're separated intentionally from their birth mother. And as we see, many of these kids will have no mother in the home at all. And wow. so anytime you break up these three, that what should be one woman, one woman that you get your eyes from, that you also bond with in utero and who is also there to like nurture you and love you and pick you up when you, you know, fall off the monkey bars. Like, that's all supposed to be one woman. And if it's not, the child is going to experience loss. Now, yeah. sometimes kids experience that loss through tragedy and we mourn. But surrogacy is inflicting that loss in the name of progress and we're celebrating. So surrogacy is a problem no matter who does it. It is always inflicting loss, massive loss on kids Ooh. for the sake of adult desires. I actually know somebody who was selling eggs, a young woman, and I asked her if she was going to regret it someday. She said, no, I have no attachment to the ovum whatsoever. And that's the thing is she may not care. The kids mm -hmm. do. The right. kids are fantasizing about her. The kids are saying things like, does she know I exist? If she mm -hmm. did, do you think that she'd want me? More than half of donor conceived kids say they think about this at least once a day. So she can wow. probably put it out of their mind. The kid can't. Talk a little bit about what government can do, government's role in this. Now, obviously, government can't make people make good choices or make people stay married or make people, you know, whatever, obviously. But government is not neutral in some of the policies that they enact that hurt children. Well, you know, whatever you incentivize, you get more of. Right. And we have incentivized every every level of breaking of the bonds between parents and children, mother and father. And so you need to get back to the point where you are incentivizing good choices, good decisions, good behavior in all of these areas, in cultural conversations, in legal conversations, and especially in reproductive technologies where there's no oversight, there's no, and there shouldn't be regulation. It should be banned. It is human trafficking. I mean, this is the closest that we've been to buying and selling people since we fought a civil war to end the buying and selling of people, right? So that's what that's what's happening in the reaper. That's what the kids themselves say. I am troubled that money changed hands over my conception. They don't wow. like it. They feel like they were commercialized and designed and bought and sold because they were. Okay, so we we have to start centering the conversation around children. Um, you know, in a just society, I think we can permit adults 
to make consensual decisions, but we should only promote and incentivize right. the adult decisions exactly. that don't violate children's rights, that don't force kids to sacrifice for adults. Right. And what happens if the egg that is donated uh, produces a child and that child doesn't look anything like they thought they would. You know, in the case of my friend donating eggs, some of her family, most of her family doesn't look anything like her. So they might be surprised when they get a child from her egg. But what about that? Or what if it's a different sex than they wanted? I mean, talk a little bit about that. That could have huge ramifications for the child if they're supposed to be a designer baby and they don't quite come up to snuff. Well, you know, I was just tweeting a couple days ago about this lesbian couple who um, feel they've been very traumatized by man, sexual assault, um, and they could not stand to be near men, have men, anything. Um, but they went through the process of getting a sperm donor, um, fertilizing one of the women's eggs and putting it into the other woman. But they said, it must be a female embryo. Then they realized that they had accidentally implanted a male embryo and the woman carrying the baby like spun out into a massive uh, postpartum depression. Um, it was traumatic for her. And they are now suing the clinic for emotional distress because they implanted a male embryo. And the woman said she likened it to rape, right? Mm -hmm. That she, it was like being raped. And I'm mm -hmm. like, you manufactured a baby. Right. That you commercially separated the baby from the baby's dad, manufactured it, went through the process of implanting it, that baby is there because of your repeated choices alone. This has mm -hmm. nothing to do with rape. And you know what? This idea that you can custom order your kid, that is the problem. Not that you got the wrong kid. It's that you believe that you can custom order your children. Exactly. But that's what I mean about on-demand designer babies. It's happening with sperm donation, egg donation, and surrogacy, right? Mm -hmm. That is what, and, that, and we spend all of chapter nine contrasting adoption, which is an institution-centered around the well-being of children mm -hmm. and reproductive technologies, which are a marketplace centered around the desires of adults. And so mm -hmm. it is build a bear. That is what reproductive technologies <laughs> are. It's build a baby style. Wow. That's not what adoption is. Adoption is here is a child that needs a parent or parents. We are going to find the people that will best serve this child versus right. reproductive technologies, which says we want a baby we're going to design the baby that meets our needs. And by the way, if we don't get the one we want, we will terminate it. Wow, so much more to unpack with Katie Faust. The book is called Them Before Us. I highly recommend you get it. The organization is thembeforeus.com, thembeforeus.com. Katie Faust, thank you so much for what you're doing and thanks for being here. I so appreciate it. God bless you for standing up. Yeah, kids are worth it. That's it. It's going to be hard and kids are worth it. Yes, they are. That's thembeforeus.com. I'm Heidi Harris. Remember, you can find me Sunday nights live, 7 to 9 p.m. Central Time in St. Louis, 97.1 FM Talk. You can also find me doing videos five days a week. I post them at HeidiHarris.com and also on my Facebook page, Heidi Harris Show. They're called Headlines with Heidi. I take 15, 20 minutes every day and talk about some headlines and interview some pretty cool newsmakers. So don't forget to, to check those out at HeidiHarris.com. Until we meet again, remember... You were created for a purpose. Here's Tony Scottwell.